happy. Um, what a blessing to sing and pray and hear the comments around the prayers this morning and one particular blessing in that. And you can turn to your Bibles to First Peter chapter 5 as I, as I say this. One of the blessings in that, Brother Robert, was um, that sometimes uh, the Holy Spirit just gives that assurance that we're on the right track. And it was amazing to me how much the thoughts around the prayer service and then First Peter 5 align so, so, so tightly together. And so I'm thankful for that. First Peter 5, I'll begin reading in verse 5, and I'll read down through verse 11. First Peter chapter 5. Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another, and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud. And giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. To Him who is the God of all grace, who has called you into the eternal glory by Christ Jesus, who has called you to suffer for a while, to Him be dominion and glory forever. Amen. I want to focus our thoughts this morning on verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time. This verse, of course, is a wonderful verse in just as a magnet on your refrigerator. But it's not that. It's written in the sort of as a summation of the whole conversation that Peter has been engaging with, a conversation that is intensely personal to him as it really mirrors his own personal experience. And Peter would sum up his thoughts here in the end of this conversation, really centered around this idea of humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, but not meaninglessly, that He, is a purpose that He may exalt you in due time. So this humbling is an act of faith, as we will see in just a moment. The larger context of this conversation, this letter, is one that we are familiar with. 
It's the context of suffering. Peter cannot get even through the first verse before he uses a word, scattered. That immediately raises our minds to something that is not as it should be. Something that is not ordered. Something that is not comfortable. And before long, before he even got through seven verses, he's introduced the idea of fire. Burning, not away from you, but you being in a fire. And the rest of the letter continues in that same vein. But this idea of suffering or this conversation around suffering is more, is more focused than even that. Peter's focus is on suffering that shouldn't be. So suffering that goes beyond the aches and pains that come with living in life. Suffering that comes not as a result of an accident, but on purpose. Suffering that is unjust. Usually at the hands of another. Designed for your hurt. That adds exponential levels of pressure and questions. Doesn't it? You've all wrestled with injustice. Injustice that has been maybe you just see it in the larger world and it angers you. Or maybe you experience it. Maybe you live with an unjust spouse who treats you unjustly, not as you should be treated. Maybe you labor under an unjust boss who's not interested in your welfare, your well-being. Maybe you as a child are convinced that your parents are unjust. They will not see things as you see them and it brings nothing but pressure and trouble to your life. This is a message that is gripping on any day, but I'll just confess, it's a message that is personally, not as if I've endured, but personally gripping this morning. The city in which I live, every single pastor and every single family in the city has had conversations around injustice and unjust suffering all week long. And yet, we're not unique. You're all bringing to your minds something. Maybe something that you're dealing with right now. Is there any light in such a dark world? Why do people suffer unjustly? And almost immediately in this kind of a context, there are all kinds of eruptions. Some helpful, some not so much. One of the efforts is to say, well, we, we, we have to, we have to get rid of suffering. That was Peter's idea, wasn't it? I said this is intensely personal with Peter. Peter had lashed out at the wrongness 
that Jesus, who was pure and spotless and undefiled and right and just, would be arrested and taken by people who were so clearly hypocritical. So Peter had reached out with his sword. It's one reaction. We've got to erase injustice. As if that could happen. I'm not saying that we shouldn't do everything that we can to bring justice and peace in an unjust world, but the idea that we can erase injustice by some means, by some measure, by some, whether it's, whether it's social or cultural or political, friends, we can't erase injustice in our own home, in our own life. Right? Now the reaction is just to, to run from it. That was Peter's other response, wasn't it? Just a little while later, after he was the justice warrior, and he would make things right himself, Peter realized that he might himself suffer. And that was too much. And so he ran. So we think, well, maybe we can escape it. If we just get to whatever the place might be. Typical. But that's not the answer either, is it? Again, injustice lives in your own being. Then, we look deeper into Peter's conversation, we realize that it's not just a conversation about injustice. But it's something that's far deeper than that. Here's what Peter would say. There is no virtue in suffering. You get no bouquet. Because you suffered, because you suffered unjustly, no matter how bad it may be. So this is not a, a message. In fact, First Peter, you may be familiar with it because of some of its most comforting and assuring passages. And I praise the Lord for that. The trial of your faith being much more precious than gold, though it be tried with fire, might be found in the praise and the honor and glory. Praise the Lord for that verse. But most of First Peter is tough. Most of First Peter says, you don't get a bouquet because you're suffering, because it's been wrong. Do not think it's strange, though a fiery trial. You're nothing special, he's saying. So what is First Peter about? First Peter, then, is really about the reality that we do live in an unjust world, that we will suffer because we live in an unjust world. But Peter's call in First Peter, summed up by chapter 5, verse 6, is... The call to live justly ourselves in the midst of an unjust world. To truly bring light to a world of darkness. That may seem ridiculous to you. Shouldn't I have received some kind of a medal because it's been a tough week? Because you've had conversations with your children that you should never have? Because you stayed for a Wednesday night service for two and a half hours because it wasn't safe to leave? We get a bouquet for that? No. Do we get to rant and rave on social media about this? No. The call then is to live justly. To put on Christ, 
Peter preaches this even though Peter himself had fallen and failed. I'm so thankful for history's testimony of Peter. Peter himself lived out this call unto his own death eventually. Suffering, Peter says, is the call of God to suffer well. That means some really hard things. We won't go through those today. It means to submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. It means that wives living with an unbelieving husband are to win them not by declaring war, but by trusting Christ and living kindly and patiently. You see, this is not a comfortable idea, is it? Continues on. It means that husbands are called to dwell with their wives according to knowledge. And we like to joke that away and say, that's impossible. He says, no, you must do this. Even if it's extraordinarily difficult. He finally just summarizes all this together in 1 Peter 5, 6 and says this. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hands of God. Humble yourselves. It's as if Peter is saying, and by the way, we just confess this, humbling ourselves is incredibly difficult, isn't it? Let's just confess that at the very beginning. Here's why it's difficult. Because the suffering is burden enough. Right? The suffering itself is an intense weight. And it's as if Peter is saying, I want you to add more weight to that weight. I want you to not only live out this life of suffering, but also bring yourselves under an additional load, under a mighty hand. Who chooses that? In fact, our instinct is the very opposite, isn't it? Isn't it? Consider these two examples of what we're talking about. Let's say that you are in a car accident and the windshield explodes and some of the glass in the windshield pierces your stomach. And you're sitting there in the car and you're seeing this piece of glass has pierced your gut and is bringing great pain. What is your first instinct? Rip it out. Right? Let me get rid of this pain. Peter's saying, leave it in. Why is he saying that? He's saying that because ripping it out likely will do far worse for you. It may be that that glass that is causing such pain is also pressing against an artery that's already been pierced. But it's serving as a block to let the artery just flow completely. And if you rip it out, you'll rip that artery the rest of the way. And blood will flow and you will bleed out and you will die. That goes against every natural instinct. Let me give you the opposite of an example. You ever had a child or maybe you are a child you're playing outside and you get a splinter deep in your finger. 
And oh, how that hurts. And you come to your mom because your mom's your, your protector, your comforter, the one who always takes care of your boo-boos. And your mom does something that is unthinkable. She goes and gets a knife. Or she goes and gets tweezers. And she grabs that finger that is already hurting worse. And she goes, this is going to hurt. But we've what? We've got to dig this out. And the instinct is, no! Why? Because there's the idea of additional pain on top of the pain you're already having. And yet, mom does this not out of torment, but mom does this out of love. Because what mom knows is that if you allow that splinter to stay there, it will become infected, it will fester, and eventually you're going to have to cut your little finger off. Right? This is the idea. It's hard. It's difficult. And so therefore, know this, humbling ourselves is only something that can be done in faith. In other words, humble yourselves is not just a good, just a good idea. It would be a good trait to add to your list of character traits. Humbling ourselves is, is a sign really of true Christianity. It is both, it is both, uh, the gift to the Christian by God is supernatural. And it's also something that only the Christian can do. True humility. Humble yourselves. It is a faith statement, a faith reality, a faith act. It's really how we relate and how we're called to relate to God. So maybe it would be helpful just very briefly to just recount the gospel message to see how this is a faith, a faith reaction or a faith action. Humbling ourselves. We're studying Genesis back home at Grace Chapel. And what's so astounding, I've known Genesis 1 for all my life, but just having to, to stare at Genesis 1 for the last several weeks. Something very simple, something very profound. And that is that God is good. God is very, 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 very good. And what God does for His creation is very, very good. God is about bringing good. God is about bringing beauty to this earth. Everything God does is beautiful and good. you believe that this morning? And so when God created this world, He created it in a way that makes us have to stand and wonder. I won't get to this message right now, but, but when you know when He created the world, verse 2 is a very strange verse in Genesis 1. The earth, the, 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 the world is dark. And it's wasted and it's void and there's nothing filling it. And it's just sort of this mass of, 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 of pre-order, um, material and water just kind of flowing together in this raging way. Did God mess up there? No, God is showing us what He's all about. So God then begins to take it and one by one by one through six days, God takes this that is not useful to inhabitation, and God makes the most beautiful, orderly, wonderful planet and creation imaginable, and He does that for you. For His highest order of His creation, humans. One thing that you must, know that, must, must, must see in that is that God brings beauty through order. 
God arranges things in ways that actually function and work together. And God is about beauty, but beauty only comes through order. And God's the one who determines order. Okay? So this is what humbling ourselves is all about, right? Humble yourself just means place yourself in the right order. Place yourself under the one who already is the one of dominion. So humble yourself is not just a good trait, but humbling ourselves is really at the core of what went wrong. Because Satan's temptation and man's action was, this order doesn't work out for me as well as I think it should. So man, not in his humility, but man in his pride, says, I can have better. I can have better knowledge. I can have better joy. I can have better experience. I can have better. And man takes of that fruit. And what was beautiful and orderly arranged and harmonious and designed for our good. Instead, now everything that's experienced from that point forward throughout history has been one of what? Of pain and suffering and conflict and death. And injustice, all because things are disordered, they're out of order. They're not properly arranged. Man does not like to be thankful, but instead loves himself more than he loves God. And he desires that he would be the center of all attention and all focus and all worship. Yes, as small as we are, we really believe that. And it doesn't work because it's not true. Does it work presently? Peter tells us something that is wonderful. It was alluded to this morning, but I'll mention it again. Peter tells us that a God who is immeasurably good remains committed to this goodness even after sin enters into the world. Praise the Lord for that. God remains committed to this goodness. How committed is God to His goodness? How committed is God to His glory? He is this committed. That God sends His own Son. And Peter's message is this. God sends His Son really as Two messages regarding Jesus. God sends His Son to suffer. 1 Peter 2. Christ did no sin just. Neither was guile found in His mouth. He spoke the right things. Who when He was reviled, reviled not again. When He suffered, He threatened not but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. The message there, though, is this is wonderful what Jesus did, but God sent Jesus to suffer? Yes. God sent Jesus to suffer because God also sent Jesus as our substitute. In other words, God is so committed to bringing beauty. God is so committed to bringing order. God is so committed to bringing good that He sent the only one who could bring good to stand as your substitute and to take upon 
him your, this is for Peter 3.18, who him, who, for Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust. So if you're complaining about injustice in your life, know this, you have never suffered injustice like what Christ suffered. Christ who is fully just, who is impeccable, who could not be criticized, Christ took on justice for the unjust. In other words, Christ took on the weight. Christ took on the guilt. Christ took on the punishment, the suffering for sins for this purpose, here's beauty and order, that He might bring us to God. So Christ suffers as a substitute that you might be brought to God. That's the Gospel. So that, so that knowing the Gospel then and believing the Gospel completely changes the Christian's view of what suffering's all about. It does two things. Suffering should tell us, even as unjust as it is, should not tell us that we're special, but suffering tells us that there really is the sting of sin. There really is consequence for sin. So as we live through this world and we suffer those who would scoff at us, or we suffer those who would kill us, we suffer those who would take our lives, who would cause us to quake in fear, know this, it's because of sin Our sin, and the only way that our sin is not punished is because Jesus took our sins upon Himself that we, being dead to sin, might live into righteousness so that we have been healed by His stripes. Christ has redeemed us. Peter chapter 1. Christ has redeemed us from the vain tradition we received from our fathers. In other words, we we were doomed to this futile life to just live out the same thing of ourselves committing injustice against God over and over for generation after generation after generation after generation forever and then receive the wrath of God and Christ in our stead redeemed us by being the Lamb who was a perfect spotless Lamb. And so suffering reminds us that sin really has a sting that that, st- that sin sting has ultimately been placed upon Jesus so that the suffering of today is ours at, by the, the hands of a father who gave his own son for us. So that we see suffering different. We see that suffering comes about through the faithfulness of God. It's not in spite of God. Suffering comes to us through the hands of a good God so good that He gave His only begotten Son. Friend, let me just tell you, if you believe, and this is, this is where we really, really live most of the time, believe that we are special and that we, have been, or we are special victims of suffering with the right to then live out our lives however we wish because we didn't deserve to suffer this, know this, you need to be acquainted with the Gospel. I don't know if you've never seen it or if it's just that the cares of this world have dampened your eyes to it, but the gospel must be center focus of all of our reactions. Because then, then we're freed 
to live as lights, no matter how small our light is. In a dark world, believing that the darkness will not overtake the light. Because the darkness has not overtaken the light that Christ has brought to us. Standing with Paul Wallace this last Friday morning, about 4.30 in the morning, we were both shining these little bitty lights onto a very dark street so that people walking and running by could have a little bit of darkness right there and not step in a, a light and not step in a pothole. As we're standing there watching people pass by, we, we, we both commented saying, in very real way, this seems futile. A little light, a lot of darkness. But here's what I know. This patch of, of darkness is not dark anymore. This patch has light. Friend, you can only live that out if you know and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so let's think together for a little bit. Those humbling ourselves can sound, I don't know, can sound uh, admirable and something we want to do. But let's think together from this passage for the rest of our time as to what humbling ourselves actually looks like. I want to humble myself, God. I want to place myself under your hand. And let, let me just say this as well. You will either humble yourself or God will humble you. It's every one of us today. You will either humble yourself before God's mighty hand or God will humble you. The verse above this says, God resists the proud. That means that God arrays Himself. God puts on His weapons and His clothing of warfare against the proud. This is a cold and should send cold chills through your spine and my spine as well. God arrays Himself against the proud. God actively opposes the proud. Praise God for that, by the way. And Lord, take every vestige of pride from my heart. God will either humble you through resisting you, or God will humble you through breaking you. That's also hard, but it's mercy. I think of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar said some of the most powerful, eloquent words in all of history. In regards to the sovereignty and the supremacy of God. We love the words of Nebuchadnezzar. His dominion is a forever dominion. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he doeth his will among the armies of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say unto him, what doest thou? Friends, those words were the product of a term paper. Those words were the response of a man who had been brought down to the ground. I mean, literally brought down to the ground to tread the ground like an ox. Praise God for the words. But do not test God to make you produce that kind of words. Wonderful eloquence. But what a path to get. Or God will... Humble you through chastising you and chastening you according to Hebrews chapter 12. It's the loving chastening of a father, but it's still chastening. 
In fact, it can be scourging, which is even a more intense term. Or, listen, or you will humble yourself. You will believe that God is both God. You will believe that God is a loving Father. And you will humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Now, what does it look like? What does it mean to humble ourselves? We turn there to 1 Peter chapter 5. Let me just say this as well. We won't labor it for time's sake, but it's very important, very helpful to just note who we are humbling ourselves before. That there are four descriptions of God in 1 Peter 5 as He's calling us to humble ourselves. I'd love to talk about those, but we won't. But let me just tell you what they are. Number one, you're humbling yourself under the mighty hand. Job experienced that mighty hand, didn't he? So it's a, it's a chilling thought in a way. But the very first time the phrase God Almighty was used was when God told Abraham at 99 years old he would have a son. How does that happen? Because God is almighty. So you're humbling yourselves under, yes, a mighty hand, but the mighty hand of your Father, Christ. Also in this passage, God is described as the chief shepherd. What I thought that is. There's a reason that Psalm 23 is so wonderful. And so melodical to our ears. The Lord is my shepherd, shall not want. In this same passage, he's also called, verse 10, the God of all grace. That's good news, isn't it? That's grace that never runs out. And that's grace that is freely dispensed to those who need and ask for grace. And then in verse 11, he's the God of glory and dominion. This just reminds us that God will receive the glory, that God will not be thwarted in His purposes. And it reminds us that even this suffering is in the hands of one who is dominion over all. It's not random. Although it may seem to be random. That's been a real challenge for people to think through this past week. Things have felt random. So, so random. Randomness and the idea of randomness, that life is meaningless, and things just will happen if they happen, will produce coldness, faithlessness. Friends, this is the God who has dominion forever. That includes right now. So that we believe. That all suffering is not just at the hands of evil, but is filtered to the hands of a God who has dominion over all. So what does it look like to suffer, I mean, to, to, to humble ourselves? Well, let's look at this from this passage. We'll look at two really main thoughts, and we'll sort of break them down. Humbling yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon Him, for He careth for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour, whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world, but the God of all grace, who has called us into His eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that you have suffered a while, make you perfect, 
establish, strengthen, settle you, what does humbling ourselves actually look like? Well, I think Peter answers this in a very wonderful way in these verses that follow the call in verse 6. So we'll look at several things under the category of verse 7, first of all. The category is casting all your cares upon him, for he careth for you. The idea of this verse is that you're casting something, you're taking something off. It's the same word that is used when Jesus called for uh, the donkey to take him to Jerusalem, and the disciples then took off their garments and put them onto the, 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 into the animal, and the animal bore Jesus through Jerusalem. So the idea is you're taking something off of you that doesn't belong to you and putting it on another. Now, what are you, what are you putting over there? You're casting cares. I love this word because it's so descriptive of how, where, where many people's minds are. It's just thoughts that run in many directions. Does that track with anybody? Just thoughts running, coming back, going here, going there, sort of like spaghetti. Just running in a thousand directions and it's hard to figure out or hard to pull them into the right, to, to, to a singular trough. So you're casting these thoughts and what does that do? Does it focus? Are you able to focus on your thoughts? Listen, I struggle to focus on the best days. So I'm the kind of guy that's got to be in a box all the time. That's literally true. I'm in my office, door closed, nothing on the wall in front of me, just me and my studies. Otherwise, I'm done. I'm just saying. Now you add pressure to that. Now you add sadness to that. Now you add unanswerable questions to that. And their thoughts just seem to go in a thousand directions and cannot be contained. And he says, you cast these, these cares, distract you unto him for he careth for you. What does that mean? What does that look like? What does it mean to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God? Let me just give you a few thoughts about this in this passage. Casting your cares upon him. Humbling ourselves means that we wait with hope. Even when that which is longed for is nowhere in sight. Let me say that again. Humbling ourselves means that we wait in hope, even when what we long for is nowhere in sight. You're casting cares where? Upon Him. You see, according to Scripture, our hope is not in our wisdom. It's a vain place to put hope, isn't it? It's vain to trust in men, even others. And so the question becomes, well, what is it that we're hoping for? What is solid that we can hope for? What can we expect? And there's only one answer to that, and that's God. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9 and 10. I'll read verse 8 as well. For we would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were pressed out of measure, above strength, insomuch that we despaired even of life, but we had this sentence of death. We were dying in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves. Friends, how often do you place your hopes upon that which you think would be a good outcome? And guess what? 
you have the sentence of death in yourself. You're going to die one time. So how solid is your wisdom? How solid is your sense of what is right? Only as solid as your next breath, and you don't produce that. That we should not trust in ourselves, but in God which raiseth the dead, who delivered us from so great a death, and doth deliver, in whom we trust that He will yet deliver. Friends, your hope is in God who raises the dead. In other words, your hope is in the character and the person and the commitment of God to your soul. Do you understand how freeing that is? The next one goes along right with this first thought. Humbling ourselves looks like this. Humbling yourself means that the desire for relief doesn't become a demand. Remember, we're waiting, we're hoping in God. We're not hoping in ourselves. The desire for relief doesn't become a demand. Humble yourselves under. What is that saying? It's saying, Lord, not my will, but thine be done. If relief, if relief is our only solution, and relief is only defined as we define relief ourselves, what a vain place that is to be, isn't it? You see, we're casting our cares upon Him. We cannot mention this without mentioning the Apostle Paul in Corinthians 12. It's so instructive. Paul desperately wants relief. There's nothing wrong or ungodly about desiring relief. Relief is good to pray for. You should pray for relief. You should be importunate in your prayer for relief. You should greatly desire prayer for relief. But relief must not become a demand. Because you know something? God is able to produce something better than relief. That's what Paul experienced in Corinthians 12. Relief was so desirable. I said, Paul, no on that one, because I have something that you will treasure far more than pulling that phone off. Paul, I will give you me. I'll give you me. All of it. Grace for your weakness. Humbling ourselves, as it says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hands of God. Humbling ourselves means accepting the strength is not ours. Accepting your weakness. Again, that is a great blessing. It is really a blessing. Really a blessing to accept our very obvious, except to ourselves, weakness. This is true in toddlers and it's true in the elderly. The toddler says, no, 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 I can't, I can't, I can't, and then pulls the spaghetti on their face, right? 
or the elderly who really do need to walk with some assistance. We go, no, 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 I'm independent, I'm independent. I don't, I don't, and, they, and they walk until they fall because they won't accept their weakness. And how many people under great strains says, well, I'm just going to try a little bit harder. I'm going to try this tactic. I'm going to try that tactic. I'm going to search the internet and I will try everything the internet offers. No matter how bizarre, no matter how costly, but I will try it all because I can take care of this problem. I'm going to move out of town. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to pack my, my house with guns. I'm going to, I'm going to do something. Now, some of those things may be good efforts, friends, but in that, you better be acknowledging that safety is of the Lord, help is of the Lord. I'm weak. There's not just another little tactic, a little more effort. What does humility look like? It means accepting that our timing is not God's. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you when? In due time. It means accepting that our timing is not God's, but it also means that we believe, we believe, we affirm that God's timing is right. God's timing is right. No matter how strange that may be to our senses, God's timing is right. The passage says, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. This is a different word than the, than the, than the, the there's two cares in this verse. The first word, Greek word, is this distracted thoughts running in all directions. This is not the second word. Thank, praise God for that. In fact, it's the opposite of the first word. Our Perspective, thoughts everywhere. God's care, different word, is God's very intense focus and interest. So God's not distracted. God doesn't need a little box to say focus. God is completely interested and invested in you. He careth for you. That is, He will take care of. He'll handle it. What a thought, right? And so... So what does it mean to humble ourselves in light of God caring for you? It means that we believe, listen to this, this is very important. It means that we believe that the prophet is not only later in the relief, but the prophet is right now. Did you hear that? The prophet is right now, even while I am under the mighty hand and under the strain that I so desperately want to be relieved of. The prophet is not just when I get out of it, what do you see the prophet as, right? No, he says the prophet is right now. He is caring for you right now. He's providing for you right now. Right now is doing something meaningful, more than meaningful, doing something imperative in our lives. This is the whole message of 1 Peter. The message is, if need be. If need be what? If need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold trials. If need be, you are under a fire. If need be, he says, you're living in a, in, a, in a house with an unbelieving husband. If need be, you right now are having people to question you about your faith. If need be, you're being scattered. The prophet is not after you get scattered. The prophet is right now in the scattering. That's what he's saying. 
What does that mean? How could that be? Friends, we know this by experience, we know this from Scripture. God's work, God's greatest work in sanctification of people's lives is through the crucible, through the pressure of things that we would never do if all was well. Is that not true? Of your life? God's greatest work has been not in spite of, but because of? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, he says, I am so pressed that I am almost, I'm perplexed, I am distressed, I am almost to the point of just falling off the other end. But I don't, because I realize that these things are working for, for me. They are working for my profit, working for an exceeding and eternal weight of glory. And so, you've probably seen the books, Don't Waste Your Life, Don't Waste Your Cancer, Don't Waste Your Marriage, Don't Waste the Crisis, Don't Waste the, the Sadness of Loss, Don't Waste Any of These Things by yapping. But instead, get the profit from them by bringing yourself under God's mighty hand and saying, Lord, this is not pleasant. But Lord, you're here and you're working right now. You know what Peter said? This is really an amazing thought. Listen to this. This is so good, it just blows me away. Peter says, in this, seeing it this way, you will be receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls, that means that right now, under this time, you're not at the end of you're not receiving the fullness of your faith, but right now you're receiving what you're longing for. That is, you're receiving the ministry of the Holy Spirit, you're receiving the effects of the death of Christ, you're receiving the reality of the resurrection. You're receiving this right now. So that you, not in the future, although you will, but right now, you are rejoicing. With joy unspeakable and full of glory. We sing that song a lot. We don't even know what it means. Here's what it means. It means joy that is to the degree that there are no words to describe it. That is not on your wedding day. That is not at the Thanksgiving meal when all the family is gathered in. You are able to, to, to rejoice to the degree that words aren't sufficient to describe because you believe that God is working in this right now when it feels the very, very, very worst and it seems like darkness has has overcome the light. That's something only God can do. Only God can work that kind of grace to where you see it in that vein. Praise the Lord, right? Well, let's quickly close. What does humbling yourself look like? Verse 8, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, is a roaring lion, walketh about some whom he devour, whom resisteth as in faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. Let me just run through this very quickly. What does it look like? 
humming ourselves looks like we live under this kind of pressure, we must live with great sobriety and vigilance. In other words, we must, we must battle for a sound mind if we'll humble ourselves. Pride looks like a mind and a mouth that is completely unguarded and unfettered. But humility looks like, here's someone who's going to say a few things, humility looks like the recognition that right now I am very, very, very vulnerable. Right now, I could be convinced of just about anything. Why? Because my world is being rocked, right? Because I'm shaken. Because things are uncomfortable. Because nothing seems ordered right. So you could convince me of just about anything. Now, this is just, just my PSA for the day. Friends, I have seen Christians over the last three or four years, especially the last two years, but Christians be convinced of just about anything. I mean, literally anything. Because of one, the prevalence of the Internet as our teacher. Okay? The Internet as our God and our God instead of the Word of God. And number two, because there has been so much pressure. Talking in relation to marriage, to to everything. Just stop right there. Okay? You are more vulnerable to thinking things and saying things that are not holy and that will lead to righteousness. You are vulnerable. So am I. We live in great sobriety. We understand the devil is a roaring lion. So awareness of our vulnerability to deception, to pride. And so here's a few things that he says we must be careful about. Number one, we must resist a pity party. We must. Listen to this. Peter sounds almost rude here. Listen to verse 9. Whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing, knowing the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. Do you think this is the first person who's been violently murdered? No. Do you think this is the first person who's had to live in a, in a, in a difficult marriage? No. This is happening all over the world. Listen to verse 12 of Peter 4. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trials which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. If you be reproached in the name of Christ, happy are ye. For the Spirit of glory and God resteth upon you. On their part is evil spoken of, but on your part He is glorified. You hear that? Think it not strange. As though some strange trial happened to you. Now why would Peter say that twice? Because, undoubtedly, this is a temptation. I'm suffering more than anybody else has suffered. I'm suffering wrongfully. Peter says, do not descend to a pity party. You, you. And so friends, we must be careful. We must be careful to not make our suffering about us. To not seek to bring attention to our suffering. If we don't come for help, we must come for help. And we must, we must love one another through suffering. But friends, suffering that just brings attention to self is not godly suffering. Okay? Not a pity party. And then, of course, Peter would say, 
resist the urge to rebel. I won't read that right now, but in chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, he would say, listen, you must arm yourselves with this mindset. You have, you're dead to sin. Those who you formerly walked with, you are not their friends anymore. You must arm yourselves to walk in righteousness. Now, why would he say that? Why would he say that? Here's the, here's the reason. And you guys know this is true. <laughs> when you've had a, you're on a diet, and you've had a really tough week, and you go, well, I deserve a couple of bowls of ice cream. Right? Right? Now, there's nothing wrong with ice cream. Just tell me you want it. Don't tell me you deserve it, though, right? And that's the, that's the idea. The idea is when wrong has been occurred to us, that gives us the right to do whatever we want to do. It's pride, brothers and sisters. I don't this way. Let me close this way. Humble yourselves by seeing the future glory. Humble yourselves that He may exalt you in due time. Listen to what's happening here. Listen to this. But the God of all grace, who hath called us to suffering, well, suffering's a part of getting there. That's not what He's called us to. That's not the end. The God of all grace, who hath called us. In other words, if He hadn't called us, suffering would be our life. But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto His eternal glory by Christ Jesus. After that you have suffered a while. Listen to this. Make you perfect. Establish. Strengthen. Settle. This is what God is doing. You see, when you want what God wants, you see the gospel has been displayed to you. You begin to want what God wants more than anything else in the world. You want to be like God. But being like God sounds so far away from who I am, doesn't it? There's so much defilement here. There's so much that is undone inside me. The word perfect means really free from defilement. The defilement's been pulled out. That's what God is doing. Through suffering, after you've suffered a while, make you perfect. Now listen to these words. Establish, strengthen, settle you. Did you hear that? It's felt like the world around us, not maybe not here, but Partly where I live and my neighborhood and where I go to the wide, where I go to the neighborhood and everything is is teetering like what just happened. He's like, and he's not like he says, I'll establish you. You're gonna walk. Your feet like hind's feet, according to back. You're gonna be strengthened. Your mind's gonna be settled. This is what God is doing. Trust him. May God bless you with my prayer.